politicians are the virus. Yeah, man, maybe I am dumb. You think you're free? You think you're free just because you can't see the cage they keep you in? Fauci jerked off a pangolin, and now we all have COVID. It's us against them, guys. Get out there and spread that love and liberty. Let's go. All right, in a few minutes, we are going to be spreading love and liberty and unsolicited medical advice with Dr. Molly James. Guys, that woman is a powerhouse. You're going to love her. Yesterday, we gave you Blexit founder Brandon Tatum. Today, Dr. James, and Saturday, you get to break off a piece of Maddie boy on his own. I'm spoiling you guys, so give back some of the love. You know, get me back. Get a guy's back. Follow The Dad Presents, please, on Spotify and Rumble and Twitter. You're not going to find this episode on YouTube because YouTube is saving the world one podcast at a time by not allowing doctors to talk to you about COVID treatments other than the vaccines. Thank you, YouTube. You guys are a bunch of freaking heroes. Thank you for keeping us all safe. All right, guys, let's get into it with Dr. Molly James. All right, bad boys and girls, we are here today with Dr. Molly James. Dr. James is an ICU physician, and she's the founder of the James Clinic. Now, Dr. James, this show was permanently banned from Facebook uh, for interviewing Dr. Pierre Corey and endangering the lives of Americans with scary words. So to make sure the sounds you make with your face are not an existential threat to this country, can I ask you what makes you qualified to speak on COVID? Hi. Um, so I'm a board-certified general surgeon and critical care physician. Um, a lot of people are aware that I was a frontline volunteer in New York City. Um, so I'm actually from the Midwest, the St. Louis area. And in April of 2020, I actually volunteered to go out and help in the ICUs and see what was working and what wasn't so I could bring that directly back um, to the Midwest and benefit patients right out of the gates. Um, so at this point, I've treated roughly 2,000 patients in the ICU with COVID. And wow. then since leaving the ICU in September, my clinic's treated about 4,000 patients as an outpatient. Um, through our oh, clinic. wow. Wow. So you're actually one of the heroes we hear about who you, you left what you were doing and went to help where the help was needed. So that's commendable. So thank you for that. Um, when you say you treated, okay, so my family, we got COVID at the beginning of January, right before we were supposed to go on vacation. We couldn't go. Um, when we found out we had COVID, our doctor, basically the treatment was go home and try not to die. There was no treatment. We asked about ivermectin. We asked about monoclonal antibodies. There was, there was nothing offered. They said, go home. So when you say you, you're treating it, what does that mean? Yeah. So as an outpatient, right? There's when we treat COVID, it's really important to understand the phases of illness, right? Because that explains how we treated it in the ICU and how we treated it as an outpatient and why that's not working great in the ICU. Um, so the first five to seven days of the illness is the viral phase, right? This is when the virus is replicating in the body. People are sick with a normal upper respiratory in symptoms. So you hear people say it's a cold, it's nothing more than a cold. Um, so that's the viral phase of illness. And then day seven to 14 is when the virus dies off. It causes some allergic reaction and leaves behind inflammation and blood clotting. Okay. That is the cytokine storm. So that is where we see patients in the ICU. So when I treat patients, yes, there are medications. So that hold on, let's, let's, let's slow down for, for our audience. We're not as, we're not as smart as you. So 
the, the beginning phase is when the virus is replicating. And then after about a week, the virus is dying off, but the damage that it has done is what actually causes the severe, the severe symptoms. Is that what you're saying? I don't know if it's the, the virus dies off or it just the spike protein itself causes enough inflammation that it just triggers this inflammatory process and blood clotting. Okay. Um, so that is what defines cytokine storm. Yes. Okay. So in, so, I mean, you know, I'm a physical therapist. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I've had some classes, but when yeah. I hear inflammation, so if the inflammation is doing the damage, isn't there some things that can be done to treat inflammation rather than, you know, treatments for the actual disease? Correct. And this is where there's a disconnect, right? So when we treat patients as an outpatient, like you and your family, we would have considered doing because we don't know who's going to go from the viral phase to the cytokine phase. We don't know. Usually it's risk factors such as obesity, age, um, uncontrolled diabetes, low vitamin D levels, right? So yes. a healthy younger person, we're not as concerned, but I also had a 40 year old marathon runner, female in, inside a full-blown cytokine storm when they called me. So that's not completely predictable. So when we treat patients as an outpatient, like yourself, we're targeting the viral phase. I do that with two medications, um, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine as oh well as, oh, are we banned already? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I already, I already decided ahead of time. I'm not putting this one on YouTube, but yes, okay. go on. Okay. Ivermectin um, hydroxychloroquine. Yes. So I also use an antibiotic, um, either azithromycin or doxycycline, and then a medication called phenofibrate. That's a cholesterol medication that binds to the spike protein and neutralizes it as well as two over-the-counter medicines, um, Pepsid, which is a histamine blocker and aspirin, which reduces the risk of having a blood clot. Okay. All that so makes sense. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's the early part. And okay. Then, so on that, on that, yeah. um, yeah. that's similar to what the FLCCC is doing. So like I said, our doctor out here in California, it was good luck, good riddance. We got our hands on ivermectin. We got z packs and aspirin, mm -hmm. uh, also vitamin D. My mm -hmm. entire family, none of us are vaccinated. Well, my wife is vaccinated. She's a nurse. Myself and my kids were not vaccinated. We were all better in three days. My kids were better in about four hours. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Okay. So go on to the next phase. Yeah. So when patients landed in the ICU, going back to the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't really understand, right? We thought it was pneumonia and it didn't, didn't respond like pneumonia in the ICU. So it took a while and they started adding steroids. And our friend, Dr. Corey is actually one of the people who first published that this is an inflammatory reaction in the body in the lungs and steroids would work. Um, so when we started doing steroids, things got a little better for some patients. When we started adding blood thinners, things got a little better for some patients. Um, still not anywhere near what I would consider an acceptable level of success in the ICU. Okay. Um, okay. So it sounds like um, you're treating the ICU patients a little bit differently than what they're doing out here. It also sounds like you're actually treating phase one, whereas out here, there's no treatment for phase one. They're just telling you, go home. You, you, you do treat that phase. Um, you mentioned weight and obesity as one of the biggest risk factors. We've all come to see that. And even now the CDC is saying that the, this disease attacks fat cells. So what I'm wondering is clearly going back two years ago, we've yet to hear Dr. Fauci or anybody from the CDC say exercise and eat healthy. Never heard them encourage that. Instead, they said, stay at home, wear a mask. And they even encourage you to do things like order freaking Grubhub and watch Netflix. Isn't that the exact wrong thing that people should be do to be protecting themselves from this disease in your opinion? Of course. 
Yeah. Yes. And one of the things, if you if you peel away some of the layers of the many Dr. Fauci appearances, one of the things he spoke about is taking vitamin D. Um, mm-hmm. So you don't hear that as a headline, but he admits to taking uh, 6,000 units of vitamin D every day. So, you know, it's one of those things he ensures for himself, but didn't emphasize for other people. Yeah. Take vitamin D or go get in the sun instead of sitting in your house, right? Now, okay, so you said, yes, clearly they should be encouraging exercise. They've not. Dr. Fauci, he's not a moron. I mean, despite what people think, he's he's a smart guy. He's a doctor. He's purposefully not putting that out there. Why? I mean, you're speculating, but why do you think he's not telling people this? You know, if you look back even before COVID, healthy lifestyle really isn't a major um, motivation for anybody in the healthcare industry. Um, you have holistic integrative docs, you have people probably like yourself, physical therapy, right? Where that's a, a high priority. But when you look at what pays in medicine, getting people, helping people lose weight and have healthy lifestyles, isn't where the money is. Yeah, no, it's not. It's, it's not where the money is. And sadly, we're learning that money motivates a lot of the stuff you mentioned vit- vitamin D. Um, mm-hmm. I know you've, you've done some research and studies on that. We've been taking vitamin D since March of 2020 because we heard Dr. Rhonda Patrick telling Dr. Joe Rogan, I feel comfortable calling him that now because he's been right about everything. We've been taking it since then. Um, Only recently has the COVID regime started talking about that. Before that, they were silencing voices like that. They're still silencing voices. They're silencing this channel. They're trying to silence Joe Rogan. Isn't it all medical advancements? have come about because somebody has an, a different idea than what the mainstream opinion is. If mm-hmm. we silence all opinions other than the mainstream accept, acceptable opinion, yeah. doesn't medicine stop progressing? Right. Exactly. I mean, you want to debate things never in medicine. If you've had a, an opinion different than somebody else, have you been deemed as evil? It's just a, a really bizarre time in medicine right now. You know, we always used to be able to have a discussion. Are statins better? Is lifestyle better? Is is a medicine like phenofibrate the best way to lower cholesterol? And we could all kind of have our own take and do our own thing. And nobody was villainized for that. And now it's just not that I can remember. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's just a bizarre, bizarre time where you actually have doctors pushing for censorship. That is a very dangerous, slippery slope. Yes, it is. It I can't think of anything of it in my lifetime. The first thing that comes to mind was how the Catholic Church tried to shut up Galileo for having the opinion that Earth was not the center of the universe. That that's what it that's what it seems like to me. Um, most people in society up until this held doctors in very high regard. A lot of us still do. I mean, you guys go through an incredible amount of schooling, and in general, you're you're more intelligent than the average person. You can't become a doctor and be a dummy. Um, personally. I've worked in the healthcare community with doctors. I've seen a lot of things that have disappointed me. I've had 11 spine surgeries personally, not a single one of them helped my problem. When the pandemic hit, I could no longer see doctors. I could no longer go to my gym and and do the things they were instructing me to do. And I, I reworked my whole routine in my garage and began doing just like body movement therapy that felt right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was able to reduce my pain that was with me for 25 years and that I had 11 surgeries for by at least 80%. So I guess my question is, why are doctors dumb? (laughs) I think that's a fair question. Um, And I think it's a number of things, right? There's a 
a time issue and a bandwidth issue is number one, because I'm looking at my colleagues that I worked with six months ago, and we were in the trenches in the ICU together talking about things and having conversations, right? And I will, some of the doctors I work with were very leading edge on ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, you know, had our hospital stock up on it. Mm-hmm. They were very well read. I'm disappointed that they didn't stand up when, when we had some treatment successes with ivermectin in our ICU, it was pulled off the shelf by a COVID committee. Um, mm. So I'm disappointed they didn't stand up. Right. So do you think they, they were intimidated or they didn't trust their instincts or they just, they were being careful about their career? What do you think that is? I think it's the last one. I think people have a lot at stake and it's just not worth the fight. Right. It's just not worth the fight for some people. Um, but I think it's a bandwidth issue. So if you look at your typical ICU physician, right, they're working 15, 18. I was working 24 shifts a month in the ICU. Wow. So the last thing you want to do, yeah, the last thing you want to do when your whole life is COVID is go home and read about COVID and dig through articles about COVID. You want to spend time with your family, do your human activities, do your laundry, pay your bills, go get groceries, cook. Mm -hmm. Um, You want to do life. And so if those people actually did dig into the literature, right, 95% of what they find is vaccines, 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 and ivermectin is horse-based. So you really have to have a commitment to digging and digging and digging and not accepting where you are to come up with this solution. So doctors are like everybody else. They're busy and they don't have time to really dig into the nitty gritty of these things. Uh, That makes sense. It's like why most of the people I know, most, most of my friends they, you know, they might watch an hour of CNN a week and that's, mm-hmm. that's the gospel to them. They're not digging into these right. other sources and, and logically breaking it down. I, I get that. Now you said, you said that they, they didn't, you know, it was about their career. They didn't want to fight. So who would they be fighting? Who are they fighting? Yeah. Is it the pharmaceutical companies? Who is the fight yeah. against? So, and I don't want that to come across as an excuse. I'm not by any means explaining that this is acceptable because there's a good reason for it. Um, I hold them very accountable that your patients are dying and you're just cashing in your paycheck. Um, We are heavily disincentivized to be connecting the dots right now because we have medical directors, we have, you know, chief medical officers, people who work in the corporate medicine, the corporate medicine is where the fight is to be specific. So there are mandates and directives that come down from corporate medicine that say, you're not going to prescribe IVER, you're not going to prescribe HCQ, you're not going to give exemptions to vaccines for your patients, even if they're medically indicated. When you have a bureaucrat administrator dictating to doctors how to practice medicine and they just do it, you've lost your autonomy. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and doesn't, so my wife is, she's a nurse at a hospital and I won't get into specifics because I don't want to get her in trouble, but there's certain things that seem to be financially incentivized, not just at her hospital, all hospitals. So that's another thing you're fighting against is is you have directors who are pushing something because they're getting pressure from the board and the board is looking at the numbers. And then you got the the stock investors and, and all of that. It's, it's a real problem. And I don't know. I don't know how you unravel all that and fix it. Mm -hmm. I don't either. The one thing I will point out, the nuance to my criticism of the medicine is I do not, I've never said that anyone got intubated inappropriately for money. I've always defended that hospitals got reimbursed more dollars to take care of vented patients because anyone who is taking care of those type of patients, these were very 
workload heavy. They were mm-hmm. on extensive drips and medications. It was, it, they needed more money to be able to take care of them, right? Sure. Where, where I find the conflict of interest is that corporate medicine over here is saying don't prescribe early treatment, which reduces hospitalization and death. And over here, hospitalization right. and death outcome benefits them 100,000 plus per patient. That's, that's a conflict of interest. That's a definite conflict of interest. It's a definite conflict of, of interest. That's obvious. That's as big a conflict as the fact that uh, all the, the people at the CD or the FDA seem to be a direct pipeline from these pharmaceutical companies back and forth, like conf- clearly a conflict of interest and money's going to get in the way of that, no doubt. Now, mm-hmm. Omicron, Omicron, I I see it as having been a bit of a, a blessing to the conversation. I know a lot of people have said this, and, and I think that's what we had was Omicron because everything I've shouted at friends and talked to uh, other people about and tried to convince them on that I was unable to convince them on mm-hmm. Omicron seems to have swayed them because they've everybody got Omicron vaccinated, not vaccinated. Doesn't matter. Everybody, everybody got it. Almost yeah. everybody had a mild case. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the new narrative that the, that they seem to have come up with to overcome the fact that people's eyes are open is now they're saying that, well, Omicron was mild because you were vaccinated and now you have an extra layer of protection with your natural immunity. So number one, uh, Omicron was mild for almost everybody, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And number two, is there any science behind this idea of an extra layer of protection? Like, can you pile your protection on top of each other or is just one protection better than the other? So natural immunity is broad and enduring. There's over, I think it's up to 150 studies on brownstone.org that review this. And Dr. Paula Alexander is one of the leading authors that compiles this data and reviews it. Um, He works with Global COVID Summit. So what they did is they took a failed policy and they tried to spin it. And one of the failures of this whole pandemic response is the failure to recognize natural immunity. Um, It just doesn't bring profits, right? And when you have people who are the CDC director, when you have state health directors that come out and say, yeah, natural immunity might be okay, but you need a vaccine. That is in counter and in the face of every single piece of data for history of medicine. That's okay. it's defensible. So, so natural immunity is better. I understand that. But Correct. can you can you um, pile your like? Is natural immunity plus a vaccine is that better than just natural immunity, or is that just BS? This is BS. Okay. So I was trying to skirt that issue because <laughs> I don't look at the vaccine as anything that enhances the immune system. I look at it as something that impairs the immune system. And if you look, most of us know somebody who died after they received it. We know somebody mm-hmm. who had explosive cancer. So an aggressive or recurrence of cancer that went uncontrolled. Yes. Um, we know people who have reactivated viruses. And um, Dr. Cole has done a lot of work looking at CD8 levels and things like that, and are showing very concerning patterns of the spike protein interacting with CD8 and P53, which is a tumor suppressor gene, and that may be leading to this. So do I think you're better off with natural immunity? Yeah. Do I think if you got the vaccines and you have natural immunity, you're in better shape than if you didn't have natural immunity? Yes. Okay. That, that sums it up nicely. Yeah. I... I got the J and J, I don't know, maybe in June, I got talked into it and I was sick for about four or five days. I got COVID and I was sick for about 
two days. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Yes. I think almost everybody knows somebody who died from the vaccine. I have a high school friend who died from it. Um, and what I think we're starting to see is that if you had the vaccine, it seems like it actually had negative efficacy for Omicron because people were, it was conditioning people to fight Delta and, and alpha and Omicron was a completely different thing. And their body had a harder time adapting. Is that unscientific? Do I, am I saying that correctly? So Omicron evaded natural immunity as well. And chart, yes, you're right. People who got the vaccine were more likely to get Omicron than people who did not get the vaccine. Correct. Yeah, that's wild. So that doesn't bode very well for the future of the vaccine and the idea of, okay, the mandates. So Mm -hmm. the vaccine is not what they told us. There may be some benefits of the vaccine, but it's definitely not 95% efficient at stopping COVID, which is what Fauci, that's how he sold it to us. It's not that nobody, that's not misinformation. That's the truth. Um, It seems it's a personal choice at this point because there's, there's some definite, some drawbacks to it. Isn't it as a doctor, are you going against the oaths you took when you push a medicine on somebody who doesn't want it? So one of the principles of medical bioethics is autonomy, right? The patient always has the free will to choose their own future. And that is one of the things that we should be respecting. So absolutely, it is completely unethical to force a treatment on a patient. And one of the things I, you know, I remember one of my mentors in medical school saying is the worst thing you can do for a population is treat everybody with the same medication at the same dose. That's the best way to kill people because people come at a variety of very difficult medical situations and pre-existing conditions that mm-hmm. they're dealing with. And so one size fits all is never effective. No, never has been, never has been. Um, all right. So I heard today, I read actually while we were, I was waiting for you, I just saw on Twitter, Kristen Norland, spokesperson for the CDC, she said to CNN today, there's still a lot of work to be done in America, blah, 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 wear your masks indoors, stay home when you're sick. Okay. Stay home when you're sick. Makes sense. And wash your hands. Now that line caught me because I'm only a physical therapist and I don't, I don't know much, but I did have a few microbiology classes. And from what I learned, washing your hands is a defense against a disease that is on droplet protection, but this is an aerosol disease. So is washing your hands do any good with a disease like COVID? So I don't know. I think it's a good health practice in general, right? Because people are coughing into their hands and things like that. So I think it probably does have some efficacy that way. Um, We know that masks are completely, pretty much completely useless against this, especially the cloth masks. Mm. Um, If you ever look around and you see how people are wearing them, you know, they're hanging off an ear, they're down below their chin which I'm totally fine with because I don't think they should have to have them on at all in the first place. Um, This is the first time we've ever tried to use masks to contain a viral illness. And if you look at some of the population curves, when mask mandates were instituted, case rates went up. Yeah. Well, I mean, the statistics show they didn't work. I mean, the science, the science tells me that they, a cloth mask, the particles are going to get through it. That's the science. The data shows they didn't work. The places that didn't do mask mandates didn't do any worse. And and in some cases they did better. And what's infuriating here in California. So my kids missed a full year of school. That's, that's infuriating. Number one, number two, now they're back in school. And this year they're, they're all masked up. They've been masked up for two years everywhere they go. Then you see Gavin Newsom and his buddy Irvin Johnson at the, at the football game with 70,000 people unmasked. So Mm -hmm. clearly these, these 
power hungry monsters don't even believe in the masks. They're just punishing people. I don't know why, but it's hurting the children. Why are doctors, how can, how can we get doctors to come out and condemn this practice? I've only heard a few of you. You know what? I don't know. Um, especially in California, they passed a law because I was writing for um, vaccine exemptions for people who needed them, medical exemptions. Um, California passed a law that you have to have an in-person physical exam in order to f- write an exemption. And okay. then their doctors have threatened that they can't do that. So when you have state medical boards threatening doctors how to practice medicine, that is a whole nother set of problems that we have outside of the corporate medicine structure. But, you know, we need to silence them. They're, they're not equipped to evaluate medical data and no. tell doctors how to practice medicine. They're just there to make sure that there's a safe practice of medicine in place. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what I'm hearing from you is doctors are being stifled by fear of bureaucracy and they're being stifled by financial motivations that are yeah. being governed by the bureaucracy. So bottom line is bureaucracy is the reason we've flubbed this pandemic so horrifically. Yep. And if you look at who controls the research dollars in this country, the NIAID and mm-hmm. the NIH control the majority of research funds. So if you want to know why people aren't speaking up, it's because Anthony Fauci decides who gets what research budgets. So right. not only, and not only, I mean, these are complicated decisions, right? Because somebody may not only be concerned about themselves, but they may have a lab of 20 or 30 or 50 people that depend on them for an income. Mm-hmm. And so they're not all just selfish decisions either. Yeah. And okay. So he controls billions. I don't know. How, I'm throwing that out there. He controls a lot of money and where it goes and who gets to study what mm-hmm. in two years of the greatest existential threat to mankind in human history, blah, blah, blah. We have medicines like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine that a lot of people say works, that there's been a lot of real world data that has shown it works. There's been a lot of studies that have shown it works. There's anecdotal stories all over the place. Why have they not allocated money to find out if it works? Like they've had two years, they've, they've sent money everywhere yet. They, they just refuse to even conduct a study. What is that about? So that is disincentive, right? Because if you look at places like Uttar Pradesh, India, that incorporated ivermectin, a track and trace program where they got the meds out to people, they isolated them and their families, they treated their direct contacts. What happened to the incidence of COVID? One way down. It dropped like a rock, 90% reduction in cases in two weeks. So if we would have instituted those measures, this would have been over in weeks, three to four weeks, we would have been done with the pandemic and we would have moved on. There would be no emergency. There would be no emergency money flying around. There would be a no emergency authorization for vaccines. We would be done. And so hearing Dr. Malone, I've spoken with him and heard him talk about the studies and how they set the bars. So if you have a product like a remdesivir that is um, a profit center, right, is a patented drug, the bar is extremely low to prove and get an EUA, emergency use authorization. When you have a medication like ivermectin, they wanted them to go back to the bench to determine the mechanisms of action at a molecular level and a chemical level in order to move it forward. So the guidelines that were set in order to get ivermectin into studies were a barrier to entry. And since ivermectin is already an FDA approved medication, this is what drives me crazy is um, I was testifying in court the other day and they said, well, COVID's not FDA approved for, or 
ivermectin is not FDA approved for COVID. Well, it never is going to be because it's already available. So there's no incentive for anybody to do a study because it's already in the door. It doesn't need to come back in the door again. Right. So, so, so typically if a, if a medicine is, is being, uh, uh, what's the word reappropriated? What's the correct word when you use it for repurpose, when a medicine is being repurposed, another study is not done. Typically they just go off of, of what they see in the world. Is that how it goes? Yeah. So they can do studies, right? So they typically don't. Yeah. Dr. Malone did a study on Pepsid, famotidine in COVID that showed efficacy. Um, So it is done. But again, in this instance, you have an extremely effective medication, which would have the EUAs for the vaccines are contingent upon no effective, safe and cheap medications available. No alternatives available. So you have an alternative that's available. (laughs) So again, money comes down to money. So, so we have government which which sets these rules and controls these funds, and we have these financial companies who control the politicians making these decisions. So it's right. complete that the incentivization is not. I don't know if that's a word. Let's say it. Incentivization is not to stop COVID. It's to get money in the pockets of the pharmaceutical companies. If you stop the pandemic, as it seemed like they did in India, as it seems like they did in Japan, as they've yeah. done successfully in Mexico, if you stop it, yeah. according to our law, there's no emergency act. If there's no emergency act, they cannot use spend all of this money and get yeah. people ungodly amounts of wealth. That's what it boils down to. Yeah, That's disgusting. And I would challenge people to go out and find out when the pandemic ended because there are specific criteria for the definition of pandemic, right? And we met it somewhere in what, March, April, May, somewhere in there of 2020, we met pandemic criteria because it was a rapidly spreading virus over a number of continents, right? It had, yeah. it had to have a specific list of criteria. And I, I tweeted and I said, the pandemic is over. And I was actually kind of being um, sarcastic because number one, it is over. This has now become endemic. Mm-hmm. And so the pandemic was over at a given point in time. I challenge people to tell me the date because I've looked it up and I can't find it. But second of all, if you have hospitals who are firing 15 to 20% of their workforce, clearly there's not a health emergency. Mm, right. Or they wouldn't be able to do that. Right. Well, the, and they're firing nurses and then they're ending up short staff. So then they're bringing back COVID positive nurses while leaving the fired, unvaccinated, healthy nurses at home, which is, I mean, my, my fourth grader could tell you that's the dumbest thing he's ever heard. That's, it doesn't add up in any regard. Um, I don't know, man, if I was, if I was a doctor, if I were someone like you who saw through all this BS, um, and was aware of the problem, I, I feel like I might just quit and move to, somewhere coastal in Mexico and, you know, enjoy, like, it's so frustrating. Like, how do you, how do you every day come home from work, knowing all of this and chill out? What do you do to cool yourself out? So let me go back to the 2000 patients I took care of in the ICU. I would say probably well over half, probably closer to three fourths of them died. And when you take a step back and you say they didn't have to die, if I would have known about ivermectin and if I would have known how to treat them better earlier, so many people wouldn't have died. It burns a fire in your soul that I can't describe. And you have to find a productive outlet for that. And that's why we're treating. And I don't have downtime because at the end of the day, it's like somebody's out there not having, can't breathe. 
And if I want to go watch TV for a half an hour, they may end up in a hospital and die. <laughs> so one of the things I've had to work with with my team is everyone has to shut your computers off at the end of the day and go be a human because they're so mission driven and they know people out there that need us. Mm-hmm. Everyone's kind of burning themselves out. Yeah. Yeah. That that's rough. I, I mean, look, no, thank you. I'm glad there's people like you out there. I mean, you're, you're heroic. We use that word cavalierly in society. You know, if a, if a girl loses 15 pounds and puts on a bathing suit and shows her stretch marks, she's a hero. Okay. You're a hero. You're saving lives. You're risking your career by saying things that people, a lot of people are not going to agree with your hero. We appreciate you. You're also good at this. I don't know if you've done other podcasts, but your voice should get out there more. Um, getting back to Ivermectin, um, that, that one is the one that frustrates me the most, um, because of all the real world data. And it, it seems to me so clearly that the intent is to shut it down because of money. And what we've also seen now is like doctors will prescribe it. And then people go after their medical licenses for prescribing that we've, we've seen that. Do you know, like, are there backdoor channels for people to get ivermectin? Is there what, what, if people, if, if someone today gets mm-hmm. COVID and they've heard yeah. this podcast and they're like, Dr. Molly James knows what the hell she's talking about. I'm mm-hmm. going to get on the Pepsid and the ivermectin and, and all that. What do they do? How do they go about getting it? Yeah. I mean, there's a number of clinics across the country. There's people prescribing this. Um, there are pharmacies. I recommend people go to a compounding pharmacy. Um, what does that mean? So right now, if you go get the three milligrams, the commercially available ivermectin is in three milligram tablets. It's under, it was Stromactyl was the brand name. Now it's the generic. Um, Those tablets go for $5 a piece. So if you're a 150 pound person, which is pretty light in today's world, if you're a 150 pound person, that prescription is $500. The way I prescribe it for it, I do 20 doses for my patients. That's $500. you know, figure out if you're 300 pounds, that's a thousand dollar prescription. We're talking about if you're buying it through a commercial pharmacy, if they'll fill it, um, compounding pharmacies actually custom make the capsules to the dose that we need. And those sell anywhere from three to $5 per tablet, um, total for whatever dose that we need in them. So it's much better price point. Okay. So Mm-hmm. Personally, we we first heard about ivermectin from I believe it was Dr. Pierre Corey on Joe Rogan like a long time ago. Yeah. And we've been thinking about expatriating. We went down to Panama mm-hmm. and we just bought up all their ivermectin and that lasted us for a year and yeah. for that year we didn't get it. We f- I flew I flew around the country about 10 different times. I was surrounded by COVID at least 7 8 times like mm-hmm. around people who had it never caught it. The ivermectin ran out six weeks later, my whole family caught it. I mean, I know that's anecdotal, but I I'm sold on that. Like I, it worked for me. And the idea that we could have stopped this thing two months into it, not with lockdowns, but with a medicine that costs five bucks. Mm -hmm. It's it's heartbreaking. All right. So your, your clinic, um, if, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, where can they look into that? Yep. We're at jamesclinic.com. That's our website. We have kind of two main programs right now. The first is the COVID program. There's different levels based on, you know, how, where someone's coming in. If they just want a prevention consult to be prepared ahead of time, you know, if they're sick now, 
if they're sick now and need oxygen and need us basically to do hospital care at home, we've got the different levels. We also have a long haul program. Um, and then when I was talking to patients about COVID, they were telling me like, I'm never going to my doctor again. Can you just be my regular doctor? And I can't be everybody's doctor that I talk to. Um, that goes back to state licensing. And so um, we do have a concierge membership program and we are rapidly growing state by state and trying to add doctors and nurse practitioners to our team um, to provide that service for people. So that's the join the membership. That's what that is. Okay. Good for you. Good for you. Um, you're not, you're not a fortune teller, you're a doctor, but let's, let's fast forward, let's say, uh, 10 years in the future. Like I remember the, the 2001, the Iraq war, everybody, not everybody, most people, not me, were rah, 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 war, war, war. Um, we got to get the terrorists. And then of course, 10 years later, we realized, uh, we went after the wrong people. Iraq was not full of terrorists. They didn't have weapons of mass destruction. All the truth came out, right? It all eventually came out, came out way too late, but it came out 10 years from now. What do you think the story of COVID will be? I think it will be, this was a vaccine program disguised as a pandemic. I think it will be, they knew that these shots were hurting people and they hid the data and they tried to push the data for profit and that the government was complicit. I think that's one stream of reality. I think medicine is permanently divided. It, there's a civil war in medicine right now. And one side is, I believe what the government tells me is the right thing to do. And I'm just a soldier and I'll do as I'm told. And there's people that are critical thinkers that have an obligation to their patients to think outside the box and do the very best we can for our patients. Um, That's chilling. That's chilling. It is. And I think that there's people on that side, especially that have said, I'll do whatever I can. And I'm going to look at these new treatments. I'm going to look at the the beamer for the back pain. I'm going to look at hyperbaric oxygen chambers. I'm going to look at red light therapy and IV vitamins and peptides and exosomes and all of these things that we have to heal people that we're not allowed to use or we're not using. So that's what I think will happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, I think you might be right. And the, a good portion of the American public has lost its trust, uh, number one in government, number two in media, but number three in the, the medical community. Will that, and that's, that's bad. The third one is the worst one. Will that be repaired? Is it reparable? Mm -mm. I don't think so. Um, when you listen to the horror stories of how people are treated in the hospital right now, um, the worst thing you can do is take someone in a heightened emotional state and fear is the highest emotional state you can get. Right. And then imprint an experience on them. They will never forget how they felt. They will never forget how they were treated and they will tell those stories forever. And what I'm hearing in hospitals, when people, nurses are going in, they won't let family be with them. They're confiscating their items. They're searching patients. They're telling patients, you get what you deserve because you didn't get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, and you deserve to die because you didn't do this. When those things happen to patients, that's irreparable. Yes, I agree. All right, doctor. Uh I appreciate you. Uh, I know you had a long day at work. I'm sure you're tired. Thank you for joining us. I I'd like to come back to you in maybe six months, see how it's going, what kind of improvements, or if, if we're still going down this tragic hole. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It was a great opportunity. All right. Thank you.